Welcome to Journeys of Teaching. I'm Aaron R. Gearhart. This week, we are exploring the journey of Dr. Heather H. Woodley, a clinical associate professor of TESOL, bilingual education, and world language education at NYU. On the previous two episodes in this podcast feed, we met Heather and learned about how she entered the teaching profession as a means of combating Muslim backlash and Islamophobia in a post-9-11 New York. We also heard Heather's stories about the importance of community and belonging in education for students as well as their families. Today we round out Heather's narrative as it stands now with a conversation about how Heather leverages language and literacy as a means of empowering students, focusing on their assets rather than deficits. What I want to start with um, was, so when I put the call out on the Facebook group page that I think we both belong to, I used, I was looking for what I said in the post, flawed on my part was I'm looking for foreign language educators and someone pointed out to me, foreign is kind of an othering term. Maybe we use bilingual or like what term do you prefer we use today? You educate well, me. It depends bit. who I'm working with. If I am working with students who come from a language background that's not English and they are learning English, mm-hmm. I call them multilingual learners or emergent right. bilinguals. If I am talking about English speakers learning another language, they are world language learners. Okay. I'm glad that we made that distinction. I'm going to definitely. Yeah, and we actually just changed our program at NYU. Was a we offer a teaching cert in foreign language ed, and we changed it all to world language ed. So if you're going to be like a teacher of Spanish or a teacher of Mandarin, it's now world language, not foreign language. And do that was intentional because you wanted that to be more inclusive and empowering. Yes, and what the point of it is. And less alienating and oppressive. Like it's not right. foreign to speak Mandarin. My neighbor speaks Mandarin. They're right. not foreign. They're as American and U.S. as you and me. And that's you know? that's why that term trans caring. And you had terms like I think trans uh, trans languages or trans literacy. Yeah, so trans-, trans languaging is a big overarching concept in our yeah. world. Yeah. And I loved that sentiment about like the fluidity of constructing meaning. Like I'm really big on the pedagogy of multiliteracies. I've integrated Mm -hmm. that in some of the work I've put out there. And I just like that idea of it's about constructing meaning and we shouldn't be oppressive towards anyone who does it in a way that's different than whatever the dominant majority is. So like when I looked, I looked you up on Google Scholar, that looks interesting. I'm going to click on that. So I'll just give you like a sense. It was 2003. Okay. So we're like there in the Bronx, in the city. Um, I knew that I wanted to bring joy to classrooms because I, I, I was good at school, but I wasn't always happy in school. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like I remember like my biggest memories as a child seared into my brain were moments of embarrassment or like moments of like, you know what I mean? Like those are the I, memories of school. It's about playing school versus really getting something out of it. I yeah. So my I parents like, sent me to Catholic make, school, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I was like, I want a classroom where kids feel safe, where kids feel like they can be themselves. Um, and I got no pushback. I had a principal that was incredibly supportive. That's she awesome. was basically like, "Look, your job is to teach." And however you need to get there, you get there. So I started looking at novels that really like spoke to my students. My students were seventh graders and only about half of them were qualifying for multilingual learner services. Okay. Okay. So it was a gen ed ELA class and 
they were, a lot of them were reading far below grade level, you know, but they were getting like baby books. And I was like, no, 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 there has to be something like at a seventh graders, like cognitive level that they can still handle. So I started to find books like, um, the skin I'm in, Mm -hmm. um, and money hungry and house on mango street and books that like spoke to them in terms of the real life struggles. Like we were talking about domestic violence with 12 year olds. Um, and they were, all into it, but the reading was approachable. It wasn't this scary text heavy kind of stuff. Um, but the administration, I luckily had a very supportive principal who was like, you do what you need to do to make your days successful. Your kids reading, your kids are engaged. You can bring in Tupac lyrics if you want, you know? I have a friend teaching uh, outside of Chicago who has done that actually with some of his poetry. So, oh, yeah. Um, well, that's like, I wish everyone had administrators like that. I know. I've been very, very lucky. I also take a lot of what I know about teaching, and I know this might sound hilarious, from being a camp counselor and camp. Because so much of summer experience is about building relationships, forefronting social emotional learning. Like that's what we should be forefronting in our classrooms. Right. My, my wife was a counselor for four summers and she speaks about it fondly and draws. She's a music educator. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell her that you said that she's like, that's so cool. It Um, it really is. And that's why (laughs) kids thrive. in. I mean, do you ever hear about a kid getting suspended from summer camp? No, no, because they work with them. There's restorative justice practices. There's, Team building and community building. Well, what you said that about the literature you were curating that struck me was that you weren't approaching it from a deficit mindset like they had been in the past. It's like, no, we're going to provide you with like integral, rich, meaningful texts that are authentic to your world, your experiences. And I just when I hear about the differentiation and like intervention approaches that go on and what I've seen in my own career, it breaks my heart. I wish it was more what you just described. Yeah. Because our kids know so much about so much, but they're not being tested on what they know about. Right. You know, they're being tested on what somebody else has deemed a valuable skill set. And so, that's what gets me so heated up about like the text that we choose for school, because it says so much about what, the ideals are and what we're trying mm-hmm. to accomplish and what's controlled about school. And absolutely, I, I teach a children's lit class here and I'm really excited to probably have them listen to part of our conversation as part of that. Yeah. And even, even like now when I'm talking with teachers who are teaching middle school, high school, yeah. I'm like, there is some really great children's literature that will make your students think like there's a book, we do a whole unit on names and naming mm-hmm. and like connections between names and identity. So like Thunderboy junior and my name is Alma and the name jar and your name is a song. Right. And like yeah. that one chapter from the house on mango street, I'm like, you could do this with second graders. But you could also do this with 15 year olds and have really deep conversations because children's books have much higher entry points than people make them out to be sometimes. I completely agree. You can have some some serious conversations and it's a little more approachable if you have students who might be struggling with reading so they don't feel like they're failing, you know. I even integrate YA novels in my teacher education course. It's a means of kind of empathizing with students' experiences. So I, I, we read my, your name is a song. I read it to my four-year-old this summer. She loved it. It's a great one. Yeah. I had my teacher ed students, um, 
There's a book called The First Part Last by Angela Johnson. Mm-hmm. It is the only book I've ever found that is about teen parenthood from the boy's point of view. Interesting. And it's called The First Part Last because every chapter, it's either a now or a then. Cool. I feel like this is us totally jacked their idea sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I got to tell you, right, we're missing that show and it's not coming back till January. And I'm I know, but when that. I, the first time I saw this is us, I'm like, they just stole her idea. Everything's um, so derivative anymore. Right. So the, it goes <laughs> now and then, now and then. And I had the teachers read this because it brought up so many issues of adolescent relationships and feelings. And it was really eye opening for them. That's awesome for me a little bit. Absolutely. So the idea was that your formal grades should be based on your growth. Right. So every year or twice a year in semesters, um, the big thing was portfolios and students had to take a piece they did. So I taught English language arts. Mm -hmm. So let's say they wrote a persuasive essay. They had to keep everything from the brainstorm to the outline. They had to literally track how they progressed and their journey into creating something as a final piece. Right. So your portfolio was not a collection of your best. It was something you were proud of and your journey to get there. So a lot of self-assessment, self-evaluation. Absolutely. And thinking about the process and then they had to present it in an oral presentation. So they had to present their journey to create something that they were proud of that met an academic standard. That's very impactful because they can see that growth. They can, mm-hmm. it's almost like you're helping them reinvest in their own education in a way. Absolutely. And I, I would assume that that's helpful with student retention and, mm-hmm. and they had to explain the standards they met. You know, oh. I met this standard because I did this because it was so standards based, but it was like, why are we putting, we have to put up the standard every day. And this is like, to not be explicit about it with kids is like, what am I doing with this thing? Right. So we would have them translate it, put in their own words. And at the end of the, the week or the month, it'd be, how did I meet this? What's my, what in my portfolio, what in my journey shows that I was able to do this. That's really awesome. And so many of them wanted to be lawyers that we were like, you're building your evidence. You're building your case, building a case right there. Um, and what they were graded on was not how good that final essay was. What they were being graded on was how well they were able to reflect, think about what they could have done better, articulate their process and explain how they met certain academic standards and how they would what they would even do differently in the future. That's incredibly relevant to language acquisition, isn't it? Totally. <laughs> talk a lot about comics like in my work I mean there's so much there's like comics as added literacy support for multilingual learners right Mm -hmm. right there's comics for social justice I did a talk for South by Southwest EDU Mm -hmm. um, about comics for social justice and how it's been embedded for so long even before like the MCU Right. Like Black Panther, like Captain America was fighting Nazis, you know? Um, So thinking about that and also thinking about like comics themselves as critical, as a critical way of um, challenging what is literacy, right? Right. Like, what does it mean to tell a story or what is considered like formal literacy? So comics already were like a challenging force against that. Um, 
And so there's so much in that world. I'm like, that's a podcast for another day. It is. I I teach a tech course here too. And we talk a lot about like what literacy is now. It's not just up, down, left, right. Like you just throw hyperlinks and hashtags onto a page and it's so complicated now. And so like, why are we privileging classic novels or these texts? Like, why can't we construct meaning from all these different ways. And it kind of, it kind of feeds back into the um, translanguaging work we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not to mention fantasy as sites of liberation. I've, I've read a little bit about that, but I do a lot of work with like Afrofuturism and thinking about like how sci-fi and fantasy are like really avenues for thinking about new worlds and liberation and and activism and what could be blowing my mind this morning heather (laughs) much like i noted at the end of the last episode i really admire heather's work and pedagogical mindset because she seeks to challenge what school can and should be language and literacy should serve as assets ways of constructing meaning growing and achieving in liberating rather than prescriptive ways students must be able to read and write the world telling their stories and borrowing a turn of phrase from the new london group designing the futures that they truly want to realize i want to thank heather for sharing her stories of teaching on this podcast you can follow heather on twitter at prof heather w that's at p-r-o-f-h-e-a-t-h-e-r-w Next week, we will explore the narrative of Dr. Brian Banks, an assistant professor of history at Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia. My contact information is in the episode description. This is Journeys of Teaching. I am Aaron R. Gearhart, and thank you for listening.